You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 253 of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show podcast. This is November 16th, 2021, a Tuesday. And I want to start off this episode talking a little bit about the importance of a good soundtrack. Yesterday's episode, we unpacked a bit of Frank Herbert's 1965 science fiction novel, Dune. If you're a science fiction fan, a fan of Dune in particular, or if you like Gene Edward Vyth and his book, Modern Fascism, you could check out yesterday's episode for an exploration of how these two things might go together potentially. But dovetailing off of the whole question of science fiction, I was just talking with my neighbor two houses down J.P. Chavez, and he was commenting on my episode from yesterday, which he listened to, that he has thought about getting into the novel, Dune, but can't quite bring himself to do it yet. And so he's just curious, okay, you know, sell it to me, right? Pitch it to me. Why would I want to read Dune? How do I get myself to want to pick this thing up and, and listen to it? And so I was explaining the difference, kind of the compare and contrast between Frank Herbert's Dune and George Lucas's Star Wars. And actually, funny story, I learned yesterday as I was watching some commentary on YouTube, some videos unpacking the backstory and the lore of Frank Herbert's Dune, that Dune actually was in many respects, inspiration for George Lucas's Star Wars. Dune came before, and then Star Wars came after, and some of the elements that you find in the Star Wars universe actually have, if not their origin entirely in Dune, a great deal of inspiration in Frank Herbert's Dune. Dune is to the science fiction genre what J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings is to fantasy. It isn't to say that there was no fantasy novel before Lord of the Rings any more than it is to say that there was no science fiction genre before Frank Herbert, but it is to say that Frank Herbert really did leave his mark on the genre. Instead of the emphasis being on technology, the emphasis in Dune is on psychology, on how do people tick? And if you give humanity 10,000 years to evolve with the help of this substance called melange or spice, do you potentially have the most interesting dynamics in the future motivated by how people have changed and how people have stayed the same? Taking human proclivities, human tendencies to their extreme if people evolve along certain lines, if they hack their own 
biological processes, their own evolution with the help of this substance, this catalyst. You could call it anything, but he calls it spice. He calls it melange, and it's harvested from the planet Arrakis, also known as Dune. But as I was talking about this, I was talking about just how how different it is when you're dealing with a work of fiction that from the outset was meant to be a movie. Star Wars from the outset was meant to be a movie, and plenty of books have explored the expanded universe of Star Wars, fleshed things out after the fact, after it became a big hit. Of course, Lucas had a backstory in mind to some extent, but I would say Frank Herbert, having endeavored from the outset to write a novel and a series of novels, he approached that task differently than George Lucas approached the task of creating what we know of as Star Wars. In Star Wars, you know who the good guys are and the bad guys are sometimes because of the music that's playing. And John Williams is a genius, great composer. He makes Star Wars. Star Wars would not be Star Wars without the creative musical genius of John Williams. But when somebody's reading a book, you don't exactly get to just push a button and, okay, now I'm on this page. Cue Vader's theme. Cue the Imperial March. It doesn't quite work that way, at least not in any books that I've read. So you have to use other means to indicate what is going on, what is the nature of this person and that person, and who are the good guys and who are the bad guys and who should I be rooting for. And I don't really don't like that guy. That guy is twisted and demented and sick and evil and corrupt, and I just don't trust him. I don't like the cut of his jib. This guy here is great and fantastic and wonderful, and I'm really hoping he's not about to get assassinated or whatever. But there's a funny little clip, and I want to play this for you. It won't have quite the same uh, effect as if you were watching it and also listening to it, but we'll just go ahead and play it for you and check it out. It's funny. It's called The Importance of a Good Soundtrack. It's on YouTube. Take a listen. you get the picture. That is the scene in which Vader is coming on to the ship. The uh, I don't remember if it was the Star Destroyer or uh, if it was the, was the Death Star. I think it was the Star Destroyer. He's coming in on his shuttle 
and all these stormtroopers are lined up in the shuttle bay, and they are all just like rigid rows and columns, uh, standing perfectly straight and still. And then it's just this suspenseful moment in which the ramp lowers. Here comes Vader, and he's walking through, and the officer is just gulping like, oh boy, like are we about to get force choked here? And uh, again, you know, the, the music totally changes the way that that scene feels. <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't quite watch the same way without the uh, musical genius of John Williams. But moving on, something else I would like to touch on today is a question that came up last night. I got a phone call from, I, I'll keep it anonymous, from someone I know who was having a bit of a discussion with a church small group about whether to sponsor a family of Afghan refugees. This church small group wants to sponsor a family of Afghan refugees. And that, I think, is noble. I, just to be clear on the front end, I think that's a noble idea. I think that's great. I think it's wonderful. And I know exactly why they're wanting to do that. It has everything to do with sections of the scriptures where Jesus says, whatever you, whatever you have done for the least of these, my brothers, you've done also to me. You know, even if you give a, a cup of water in Jesus' name, Jesus says that you will be blessed for it. And so this small group is wanting to reach out to some family which has left everything behind in Afghanistan and they've come to America and they have nothing probably except for the shirts on their backs and maybe a few sundry items, just a few, a few tokens. And they are here and what are they going to do? How are they going to get established? How are they going to start over now that the Taliban and ISIS and Al Qaeda have taken over Afghanistan once again, after 20 years of American and allied forces occupation, particularly if these Afghanis have worked with coalition forces for the past 20 years, and that's known to Al-Qaeda and ISIS and the Taliban, it's not safe for them. That is a death sentence. That is a death sentence for you as the man of the house, quite possibly for your sons if they can't be forced into uh, service for the new regime, the new old regime. And your daughters and your wife will either be raped and murdered or they will be given to fighters uh, you know, against their will. It, it won't be a consensual thing. It'll be you essentially, for all purposes, are a, a slave to one of these diehard Islamist uh, jihadists. And so the small group wants to sponsor a family and help them get their start and help facilitate that and help support that. And they want that to be part of our Christian testimony. And they feel the Lord has laid that on their heart. But the question arose, is this a Christian family or is this a Muslim family? And the person asking this question was very uncomfortable with the possibility that a Muslim family of refugees from Afghanistan would be sponsored by Christians. 
And, and the line of reasoning goes like this, real briefly. They're Muslims, and if they're going to, be, if they're going to continue to become uh, what they are, but now be successful financially, materially, professionally, socially, uh, Muslims, why would we fund that? Why would we give our resources to support them continuing to be uh, Muslims? In the West, if you read Douglas Murray's The Strange Death of Europe, you'll know what I'm talking about. And I, I would highly recommend The Strange Death of Europe by Douglas Murray for a thorough exploration of this. I, I, I don't agree with Douglas Murray's um, sexual orientation. He is a homosexual openly, uh, admittedly. Uh, I don't agree with his atheism. I think it's tragic. But he writes very clearly on the question of the strange death of Europe. Post-World War I, World War II, Europe underwent an existential crisis, in part because of having rejected God already. That's part of how they got into World War I and World War II to begin with. But World War I and World War II accelerated the secularism of Europe, the, the secularization of Europe. And instead of Europe identifying their godlessness as the culprit, as the cause of World War I and World War II, they rejected Christianity and blamed Christianity. How could a Christian West, an ostensibly nominally Christian West, have wreaked the devastation and, and killing and being killed on a massive industrial scale that it did, not only in Europe, but in Africa, in Asia, in the Middle East, all over the world. That's why they're called world wars. How could an ostensibly Christian civilization in Europe do this? If that's Christianity, I don't want any part of Christianity. Only a careful student of history would know it wasn't an excess of Christianity that caused World War I and World War II. It was a shortage of Christianity. It was a rejection of Christianity and an embrace of humanism, secular humanism, and neo-paganism in the case of Germany. But what Europe did post-World War I and World War II was to replenish lost labor, men who had died on the killing fields, they imported in mass what are euphemistically referred to as Asiatics, but very often uh, Pakistanis, people from Northern Africa, people from the Middle East who are Muslims. And because Europe has rejected Christianity and embraced secular humanism and materialism and also imported all of these Muslims, they have a problem on their hands. The materialism of the West has led to declining birth rates and a crisis of confidence. We don't believe in ourselves. We don't believe that our culture is worth promoting, celebrating, and 
passing on to the next generation. The next generation is smaller and smaller because we're having fewer children because we, you know, why? Why, why would I propagate my own civilization any more than is absolutely necessary to scratch a psychological itch? And meanwhile, the Asiatic so-called, the predominantly Muslim uh, immigrants to Europe who were going to fill the gap in rebuilding Europe, rebuilding factories and roads and bridges and cities and, and all that and populating them. The Asiatics have not had that same existential crisis. They, they're as Muslim as they were before they immigrated to Europe. And a lot of them, you know, one generation in, first generation immigrants to Europe uh, assimilated better, but their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren have been increasingly aggressive in rejecting Western notions and embracing uh, radical jihad. And so there's very much a controversy among the ruling elites in Europe, the political and cultural elites, the people who control the levers of power, as to what to do about this. And very wealthy people who have gated communities uh, where your you know, credentials to enter the neighborhood are checked at the gate <laughs> by a guard who's posted at all times, uh, by the butler who answers the door for you, uh, the, man, the, the man and maidservants who uh, do all of the, the actual work of keeping up your estate, uh, that class of people don't see what the big deal is. In fact, uh, they think this is actually pretty great because uh, it brings the cost of labor down and we're proving how inclusive and broad-minded we are. And, and it's an embrace of secular humanism to also embrace multiculturalism. But what happens along the way is that the working class people don't have the privilege of keeping their distance from uh, Muslim immigrants, and they have to interact with them. And when they interact with them, uh, some unpleasant things routinely happen. Uh, East meets West, ostensibly or historically Christian or Christianized Europe interacts and rubs shoulders with uh, Muslims. And all of a sudden, there's a problem with your wife, your daughter, your sister, dressing the way that she does with her head uncovered, maybe a, a shorter skirt than the Muslim population in the neighborhood thinks is appropriate where they come from, and violent and uh, awful things happen. And so then there's a conflict. And then there's a question of what are we going to do about this? And the working class folks are not okay with their wives and their daughters and their sisters and their mothers being harassed uh, or, or told to cover up. They're not okay with that. But then the ruling elites will quickly have the back and run interference for the Asiatics. Uh, at the same time, you also have terrorism. Uh, beheadings, stabbings, shootings, uh, bombings, threats of violence, a lot more often than there is actual violence. And this gets uh, euphemized and the Muslim component gets downplayed. 
There's a failure to assimilate by Muslim immigrants to Western civilization, in part because Western civilization isn't requiring it and doesn't want even its own native members to assimilate to their own culture uh, or celebrate it or defend it or insist on it. And, and so there's, there's just a, it's, there's a mess. And there's an expectation that demographically this mess is going to become more and more pronounced. And if something doesn't change in terms of how many children native members of Western civilization are having relative the Muslim immigrants are having, and if something doesn't change in terms of the championing of, well, this is our culture. We're, we're proud to be French. We are historically French descendants of the civilization that Charlemagne created. We are historically Brit, and we are proud of the Britannic Roman heritage that we are the heirs of. We are historically Scott, and we are proud of the Scottish heritage, Scottish-British heritage that we have for hundreds of years. If that doesn't happen if that's not allowed to happen because the elites are saying no that's racist xenophobic etc but at the same time your muslim populations are insisting on sharia no alcohol no pork uh, no food that is not halal it it doesn't no food that doesn't meet uh, strict islamic dietary requirements you know, what you'll have in effect is <clears throat> Europe being taken over and conquered through colonization by Islam. Plain and simple. Plain and simple, that's what it comes down to. At a certain point, the Muslims win by numbers. You just have to give them a, a few generations because they're having lots and lots of children and native Europeans are not having very many children or any children. They're not even replacing themselves in many cases. And so then you come back to this question of the church small group wanting to sponsor a family of Afghan refugees, irrespective of whether these are Christian refugees or Muslim refugees. We just know that they're refugees. And so the, the concern by one party who called me was if we're sponsoring Muslim refugees, we are contributing to, and, and these are my words, not, not this person's words, but we're contributing to the same dynamic, which is going to see Europe uh, become majority Muslim in a few generations. We're contributing to that if we are subsidizing a family of Muslim refugees from Afghanistan. Now that I've said that, people who get their information from mainstream media sources, from establishment politicians in America, hear very similar things to what Europeans hear and have been hearing for decades. Douglas Murray says America is maybe two to three decades behind Europe at best. And we may not be even that far behind Europe if certain radical left uh, political forces have their way. But when you get your information from mainstream media sources, when you get your education from a mainstream public source, 
you hear an objection along the lines that Douglas Murray might raise, and you immediately have an allergic reaction. That is racist, Islamophobic, xenophobic, uh, intolerant, and we have to do better as Christians. That, that, that is the thought process that you are conditioned and programmed to have by our corporate media because our corporate media is owned by, operated by, run by, managed by the same type of global citizen, secular humanist folks who are calling the shots in Europe. Here in America, our ruling elites are very much in the same mindset as the ruling elites in Europe. And you need look no further for evidence of this, for proof of this, than the fact that the left often likes to point to Europe to prove the rightness of its ideas. And it's funny, actually, you know, Bernie Sanders does this all the time. He's run for president so many years. And every time he runs for president, he points to Scandinavian countries as some example of socialism working. Well, you know, they do it and they're very prosperous and, and, and things are going very well for them. And it's funny, increasingly, those European countries that Bernie Sanders points to as supposed success stories of socialism come out and say, uh, no, actually, that's not true. <laughs> what Bernie Sanders is saying is not true. That's not quite how it works here. And, and you know, several, uh, you know, black sheep intellectuals in America and in Europe will point out, you know, if you think socialism works, because it makes for so much less crime, so much less poverty. You know, just know some of these countries that you're pointing to are among the whitest countries in the world. So, you know, it, what you're talking about, you know, could be misconstrued as a case for racism, actually, ironically, more than a case for socialism, per se. But that aside, it is a legitimate concern. It, I, I would say it is an absolutely a legitimate concern. What are our children and our grandchildren going to have to contend with? Not with the first generation immigrants from Muslim countries, but it's historically, if Europe can be our guide, which it should be, if it's 20 to 30 years ahead of us in these trends, it is the second and third generation immigrants from Muslim countries who are raised in a home and in a community and in a mosque uh, in a mosque where you do not assimilate to American culture, to European culture, you don't assimilate because that is in direct opposition to being a good Muslim. You can't. You can't be both. You have to pick one. They, they are antithetical ways of relating to God and man and the universe and your social and your political, your cultural uh convictions are going to naturally follow. They have to, they must, uh, or else you're not, you, you really aren't. You really aren't a good Muslim. You can't be a good Muslim and also be uh, thoroughly Western. And, and this is, you know, the, the folks who try to be, we refer to as moderate Muslims, but the moderate Muslims, uh, you know, ha however much we might want them to, they don't represent authentic Islam. And so there's a 
there's a real soul searching that needs to be a part of the discussion. For instance, is the same dynamic which causes Western civilization to be thrown on the dustbin of history in Europe at work here? I would say, in my experience, absolutely. No doubt. It's a short list of my peers who are my age and my generation who have anything good to say whatsoever about Western civilization. It's a very short list. It's a much longer list if I'm talking about my peers who think that Western civilization is precisely what's wrong with the world. And this all breaks down if you read Victor Davis Hanson's uh, excellent histories pertaining to Western civilization. You know, th- this all breaks down very quickly if you, if you open a history book. <laughs> but since so many of my generation have not opened history books, they don't read history, they're not students of history, they're getting their information from a public education system which has been run by progressives who represented the post-war consensus for the past century. They are fish and water who don't know they're wet. And they would sooner see some non-Western competing ideology and worldview take over the world than defend their own intellectual tradition, their own culture. The only culture you're not allowed to celebrate in our modern multicultural paradigm is Western culture. It's okay to celebrate any other culture except for American culture. It's okay to celebrate any other culture so long as you don't appropriate their uh, features, but it's not okay to celebrate Western culture. And this goes back to how the problem of World War II was misconstrued. The problem with German nationalism, national socialism, wasn't the nationalism. The problem was the socialism. The problem was the neo-paganism. The problem was actually too much godlessness, not enough Christianity. And yet, this small group is having this discussion of, are we going to sponsor a family of Afghan refugees? And there's a whole lot to unpack all of a sudden, which if people start feeling insecure, they start feeling upset, they start getting offended, doesn't get unpacked. That conversation goes off the rails very quickly as people start reaching for easy believism positions. And so on the one hand, you might have somebody saying, well, I don't want to support Muslims because Muslims very often support, you know, if, if they're not carrying out terrorist attacks, it's a very uncomfortable high percentage of Muslims when polled who think that violence against non-Muslims is sometimes justified to advance and and to defend the honor of Islam. So an honor killing against a female relative who went astray towards a relative male or female who left the Muslim faith and became a Christian, towards infidels who have supposedly committed blasphemy by insulting their God, their prophet, their book. Very quickly, we can say, On the one hand, there's a high percentage of Muslims who support terrorists 
and are terrorists and then go immediately to, well, all Muslims are terrorists. And so therefore we shouldn't do anything good, shouldn't have any kind of relationship, any kind of cordiality with somebody who is a Muslim. They are our enemy. And to be quite honest with you, I think there's a lot of folks on the other side, a lot of Christians who are so addicted to being nice and they, they've they've had their Christian sensibilities shaped and informed by a kind of K-Love Christianity to the point that they think the highest virtue for the Christian is being nice. And furthermore, they think that to admit we have enemies is a failure of our Christian faith and testimony. If we admit and talk openly about the fact that we have enemies, then that is the most unspiritual, ungodly, unchristian thing they can imagine. It's not nice. That's not nice. Nice people don't talk about their enemies. Nice people don't have enemies. Nice people get along with everybody, just like Jesus did. Only when we put it like that, it quickly becomes clear as we survey the Gospels, as we survey Old Testament and New Testament, that that's not a sustainable, it's not a sustainable position. It's not a sustainable perspective. Jesus absolutely had enemies. The Christian church has always had enemies historically. And Jesus didn't have enemies because Jesus was imperfect or corrupt or sinful. No, he had enemies because he was the righteous son of God and wicked people hated him. So I want to draw your attention on this subject to Romans chapter 12. Consider with me verse 9 through 21. The Apostle Paul writes, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Close quote. Now, a couple of things to highlight real quickly, real briefly. Notice verse 13 of Romans chapter 12. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Elsewhere in God's word, we read, that our responsibility is first 
to the household of faith. First, you should do good to everyone, especially the household of faith. And, you know, this came up in the conversation with this anonymous person who called me last night wanting to talk about this question of sponsoring an Afghan refugee family. When Jesus says, whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done also to me, whatever you do in my name, to the least of these, for the least of these, you've done it to me. When he says that, a lot of Christians who have been fed a line of social gospel and didn't realize it, interpret this passage, that passage, that sentiment over broadly. And they don't know it. They're not trying to. They don't realize that they're interpreting that over broadly. Contextually, Jesus is talking specifically about his disciples, period. Contextually, Jesus is talking about giving a cup of water to his disciples who are being sent out to do missionary work with little else but the clothes on their back and the sandals on their feet. They're going out, and if you bless them, if you look out for them, if you invite them in, if you're hospitable to them, if you contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality, there is a blessing for you from God. Too many of the social gospel crowd folks have seized on what Jesus says there and interpreted it to mean all poor people, as if we're going to conflate poor people with Jesus' disciples by necessity. Let me tell you, not all poor people are Christians. (laughs) Not all poor people are disciples of Jesus. Some poor people are poor because they've made bad life choices and they're committed to making bad life choices. They've made foolish choices like we read about in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Life is hard. It's harder when you're stupid. And some of some of the poor people are victims of circumstance. Bad things happened to them because they were preyed upon by nefarious predators. Or life just happened. Was this man born blind because of his parents' sin or because of his sin? Neither, Jesus says. Sometimes poor people are poor, not because they did anything wrong, but just because we live in a fallen, broken creation or because it pleased God that they would be born blind so that in this moment, Jesus restores their sight and God gets glory for that. And a lot of people are blessed knowing what the backstory was. And all of a sudden here is the beautiful grace of God on full display. And we have your attention. But if we interpret what Jesus says about doing to the least of these, my brothers, to mean the brotherhood of man, very quickly we're on the path to universalism. And strategically, if I may, because we're called, we're commanded to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, strategically and tactically, does it make sense for we who are trying to advance the kingdom of God, because we're commanded to, does it make sense for us to take all of our resources and give those to our local mosque. Here, you distribute this. You have poor people, feed them. Maybe, but probably not. To be honest with you, it probably doesn't make sense for us to do that. Particularly if there are Christian refugees 
from Middle Eastern countries, from Muslim countries, from communist countries, actually, from socialist countries like Venezuela. If there are Christians who have fled persecution and they have come to this country with nothing but the clothes on their back and the sandals on their feet because they refuse to renounce their faith in Christ, our first responsibility, scripturally, biblically, is to those folks. There's no denying it. You can't argue with me. This is open, shut case, very, very clear from the scriptures. Our first responsibility is to those folks. And if we don't distinguish and we don't see that, we are missing what God's word clearly says. We're missing it. We need to go back. We need to study that more diligently. Take Galatians 6.10, for instance. The apostle Paul writes again, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. So there you go. Muslim, Christian, everyone. Let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, here's my perspective on it. And I'm okay with disagreeing with people and people disagreeing with me on this and having a difference of conscience. I think that's acceptable. I think meat offered to idols needs to come into play here at a certain point. But if I have $2,000 to spare, which I don't, by the way, but if I did, and I have a Christian family over here who's just come over from Afghanistan and a Muslim family over there who's just come over from Afghanistan, I'm either A, going to give the $2,000 to the Christian family over here who's been through a whole lot and who I'm told by Paul in Galatians 6.10, especially to those who are of the household of faith, I'm told to look out for it first. I'm either going to give the entire amount to that family or I'm going to give as much as I can to them and what I have left I will give to the Muslim family. And I, and I believe that that's biblical. I believe that that is God-honoring, I believe that's right, and that's proper, and that is scriptural, and I don't need to feel guilty about it. Now, that said, on the other hand, as Tevye would say, bless those who persecute you. That would include Muslims. Bless and do not curse them. That would include Muslims. Live in harmony with one another, Romans twelve sixteen. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. Verse 17. Verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And that includes Muslims. If possible. And that's a two-way street. If we're enemies, it ain't necessarily the Christian community's fault. Let's be clear about that. The Muslims have a book that tells them they're supposed to not stop generationally, over the centuries, millennia, however long it takes, they're not supposed to stop until they conquer the world for Allah, who is not the same God we worship, by the way. We do not worship the same God. Elsewhere in Galatians, earlier in the letter, Galatians 1.8, Paul writes, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Which is to say, it's conceivable that an angel could bring a false gospel. And I believe that's exactly what happened in the case of Islam. Uh, an angel, Satan himself perhaps, or some demon, brought 
a different gospel, a contrary gospel to Muhammad. And there, I said that, and I just stated what is the position, the incontrovertible, orthodox, historical Christian position. And to a Muslim, that's blasphemy. And so does it depend on me to live peaceably with all? If I say that, here's the gospel. If I say what Paul just said, let him be accursed. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Paul writes, if I say that, all of a sudden I'm not living peaceably with everyone around me. But it can't be helped. And it doesn't depend on me in that case. Live peaceably with all has to take into account that we are dealing with other people who are fallen, depraved, sinful, wicked. But again, bless those who persecute you. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. This is different on an individual basis. And John MacArthur agrees with me by the way, so I must be right. But this is different than the role of the governing authority in the very next chapter of Romans. Romans 13, the governing authority is a minister of God whose role, God-given role, the reason why the governing authority is given authority in the first place is to reward those who do good, to punish those who do evil. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And then in the very next chapter, we read that God has instituted governing authorities to reward those who do good and to punish those who do evil. And so our leaders, our governing authorities in Europe and in America have a responsibility before God to punish terrorism, to punish violent acts of rape and assault and beheading and stabbing and shooting and bombing on the basis of this false religion of Islam. And insofar as the governing authorities in Europe and in America, in the West, if you will, shorthand, have refused to do their due diligence sometimes, they've watered it down, they've played with the truth, they will have to give an account to God Almighty for having misappropriated the authority that he gave to them to serve as ministers. But again, coming back, Verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. This is our personal responsibility. You find yourself as police chief in your neighborhood and you've got a gang of rapey Muslim teenagers, 20-year-old men. This is not your responsibility to go and start up a food drive to feed these folks. First and foremost, your responsibility is to get whoever they are, whatever nationality, race, ethnicity, religion, you get the rapists to stop raping girls and women, period. You get the terrorists, whoever they are, wherever they come from, whatever they believe, you get them to stop assaulting and murdering innocent people. But if you're a small group, small group leader, an attender of a small group, and you look here at Romans twelve twenty, and you see if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Worst case scenario, we get some ISIS fighters, some Taliban fighters, some Al Qaeda fighters, 
who have snuck in to our country pretending to be asylum seekers. They're not here to seek asylum. They're here to infiltrate our country and carry out a terrorist attack. If they ain't our enemy, I don't know who would be. And it ain't unchristian for me to say a Muslim terrorist is my enemy. You come threatening my family, my wife, my daughter, my sons, you are my enemy. And if you're hungry, I'm commanded to feed you. And if you're thirsty, I'm commanded to give you something to drink. For by doing so, I will heap burning coals on your head. Do not be overcome by evil, verse 21, but overcome evil with good. Be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Jesus says at a certain point, he's sending his disciples out as sheep among wolves. And so again, strategically, tactically, the Lord loves a cheer the Lord loves a cheerful giver. The Lord loves us to obey his commands, including the command to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. You have limited resources, and also you shouldn't be twisting one another's arms to contribute to this. It's not very godly, not very Christian of you to not want to contribute money that you have in scarce supply to people who may use it to subsidize the spread of Islam in this country. There's a lot here. But I think we do well to not go against conscience. As Martin Luther says, it's neither wise nor safe. And also to not use our difference of conscience on these points where a biblical case can be made either way, to not use our difference of conscience as an excuse to tear one another down. Talk about it. Unpack these things. Don't buy into the official media narrative. Don't buy into the syrupy Caleb Christian mantra that the highest virtue for the Christian is just to be nice and get along with everybody no matter what. That ain't so. I got to leave it there, though. I am home today, but I am working on preparing for this coming Sunday morning. I... Hope this was a helpful podcast. Let me know if you have any questions. Probably stepped on some toes, especially if there are some Muslims listening. I'm not trying to offend you. I'm just trying not to offend God, just to be very clear. So, as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.